Oh, hi then. This is M.P. Fitzgerald, author of A Happy Bureaucracy, and I'm pretending to play the jazz piano. <laughs> no one is holding a gun to my head to say this, but they are withholding the antidote. Funding for this podcast comes from ebook and paperback sales of A Happy Bureaucracy, the, um, the book. Send a warning to do straight-laced and prudish books on your bookcase by adding paperback copies of A Happy Bureaucracy, Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland, and post-apocalyptic pirates. Just head over to my website, mpfitzgerald.art. Once more, that's mpfitzgerald.art. Fear and Loathing in the Wasteland The Happy Bureaucracy Book 2 by M.P. Fitzgerald Narrated by Gary Bennett Author's Note Strewn between drug use, groin malice, and cursing on a level tantamount to sacrilege are even more gratuitous mentions of bureaucracy. These bureaucratic references may not be for the weak of heart, also, child endangerment. Did I mention child endangerment? Chapter 1 The drugs had kicked in as hard as she had stomped in his teeth. This was good. She would need the energy if he wasn't going to talk. Robbie Duke stood anxiously over the smoldering char of their campfire as she glared down at her would-be assassin. She could not tell if her anxiety came from the uppers or the atrocities against God she was about to perform on the man that just attempted to take her life. She didn't like doing this sort of thing in front of a child. Dinner, of course, was no normal child. She was a child of the United Wastes, whose purpose in life was to be a fresh supply of food before Arthur had rescued her. But she was still a child. Dusk had settled over the United Wastes hours ago. A dark veil of empty night had covered the dead land like a black body bag, allowing the small campfire light to bleed out like a bright signal flare. It was a long-standing rule amongst the denizens of the United Wastes, at least one for those who knew how to survive into their twenties, that you did not light fires at night, unless you had an army. Campfires were a luxury, they were warm and helped you cook food, but they also signaled to every would-be attacker crouched in the night that there was a place worth pillaging. You either lit one out of desperation for warmth, out of stupidity, or because you wanted your pursuers to come at you. Robbie Duke was a consummate professional. She had suspected the dour deed of assassination was ahead of her the moment she and Arthur had met the commissioner for operations support. Henry S. Boyd, and handed him the colonel's inventory book. Arthur had played a game of I know you know that I know with Boyd, and though this new side of him was attractive, she knew that it would get them both killed. Once Boyd had reassigned Robbia and split the two, well, this all but confirmed her suspicions that they were marked. Robbia was an enforcer, a hired gun and muscle for the Internal Revenue Service in their plight to collect taxes in the post-nuclear apocalypse. 
It was her job to keep an auditor safe while they made the ill-advised decision to collect taxes from the savage and cruel citizens that littered the irradiated landscape. She was good at it. But the unthinkable happened. The little girl that Arthur had saved was promoted, despite his advice to her to prevent it. She was Robbia's new partner. Dinner huddled behind her knees and sat facing the fire with her back against their white government van, too transfixed at the dancing flames to be paying much attention to Rabia and their severely beaten pursuer. Still, being violent in front of the girl made Rabia uneasy. She brought her boot down on the face of the assassin like a hammer and ground dirt into his bloody face. It made her uneasy, not hesitant. Robbie lit a cigarette and puffed on it, doing her best impression of Sherlock Holmes as she held the man's face to the ground with her foot. You know the best part of this interrogation, she asked, as a cloud of smoke drifted from out her nostrils. The man stirred slightly under her, and if he had stirred any more, he would have found the crushing of her boot to intensify. This was no stubborn retaliation on his part, though. He was not struggling. He simply had to shift his jaw away from the dirt so that he could talk. No, he said with agony. The best part of this interrogation, you black-hearted whore bastard, Robbie replied, is that it hasn't begun yet. All of those bruises and missing teeth, they were just foreplay. At this, Robbie pulled out a dull knife and kicked hard into his side, flipping him over onto his back. As the man writhed in pain, Robbie glanced over at dinner, who idly stuck her small finger into the dust and started drawing with a soft hum. The man let out a painful groan. The man, before he became an amalgamation of bruises and cuts, before he was properly introduced to Robbie, was a short man, not worth looking at. His features were plain, and though Robbie didn't want to seem ignorant, she thought he looked like every other white man that worked in the IRS bunker. Being so able to blend in at the office was surely useful to him as an assassin. Hell, using someone who was just another face in the crowd was the smartest decision you could make when picking a hired killer. That is exactly why it was so bloody fucking daft that they decided to use him out in the wastes. He wore a white shirt that was immaculate before Robbie smeared it with his own blood. And he wore a black tie that was perfectly fitted around his neck before she used it to bind his hands. If he had tried to kill her in the bunker, his clothing would have been an asset. But out here? Out here, men wore the bones of their enemies as friendship bracelets. Out here, men had no less than six sharpened spikes protruding from their jackets and a dried scalp turned codpiece was considered gentlemanly. Either Boyd had hired this man with full confidence that he would never be seen, or he hired him out of stupidity. There was no reason why the two should be exclusive. Robbie brought her boot down on his neck as she clutched the dull blade in front of his eyes. With her other hand, she reached down and fished in his pants until she found something small, shriveled, and frightened. I have never sharpened this knife, which is completely out of character for me, she said, taking a drag on her cigarette between her lips. Do you know why? The man shook his head. I only use this knife for one thing, and that's cutting peckers.
Sharpening it would just mean a quick and clean cut. And when you are cutting peckers, the last thing you want is a quick and clean cut. The man struggled suddenly below her. His eyes, though mostly puffed over and hidden behind swollen lids, still managed to go wide with fright. And you know what else, you dirty swine? Robbie had teased. This is still not part of the interrogation. Please, no, I'll- What? Robbie interrupted. Tell me anything. Save the cliche. I'll tell you what I know, and you sit and listen, and hope I know a lot. Because when I'm done ranting, your pecker comes off. A malicious smile graced Robbie's dark face. She glanced over at dinner, still humming to herself. Was the little girl uninterested in what she was doing because she did not understand what was going on? Or was she uninterested from years of seeing things crueler? So, this is what I know, Robbie spat. Boyd wants me dead, that one is obvious. He split me and Arthur apart because he figured that we worked too well together. He knew that we went to hell, stole from the devil, and came back with all our limbs intact. This scares him. He's afraid that we work too well together, and that a single assassination attempt would probably fail. Am I right? The man eagerly nodded his head. So Boyd paired me with the little one on a goose chase, sent us out here to audit a tribe that doesn't exist, with the hope that you could handle a short black woman and a scared little girl, right? The man nodded once more. Except the little girl isn't scared. And me? Well, I'm the reason we made it out of hell. The fire raged and the flames licked up at the night. Behind it, dinner looked on, her attention now fully on Rabia. The whole thing made Rabia sick. Well, not beating and torturing the man who tried to kill her. That was just another day in the United Wastes. It was how fate had treated the poor child before her. After Arthur told her to start slacking to avoid a new pay grade and a promotion to auditor, Dinner did exactly that. She seemed to understand Arthur perfectly well, and had every intention of staying out of sight and safe within the concrete walls of the IRS bunker. But janitor is an entry job, a default assigned to all newcomers without a gun. So when the emaciated man, the colonel's former slave, was processed, and his leg amputated because of sniper fire, when the man who used to be the colonel's walking table joined the sanitation crew, he set new standards in slack. A one-legged madman who had no concept of clean made everybody look like a hard worker by comparison. So, despite her hard effort in putting in no effort, despite her following Arthur's advice to the letter, dinner was promoted. Now the poor child was back out in the wastes, and whatever was left of her childhood would likely end. The uppers had made Robbie a jittery, had made her finicky. She fiddled with the blunt knife with no patience and greedily sucked at her cigarette. She would have to fight the urge to rant forever, an easy thing to do on the upper, and try to cut to the chase. I also know that you can't be the only assassin. They sent Arthur out with the tax army to attack Slaver City. You cutting the distance from way out here to kill us both would be egregious. So tell me, 
How far is the other assassin from my friend? The man eyed the knife, then eyed the mischievous drug-fueled grin that cut across Robbie's face. Dinner stared on, and Robbie could feel her impressionable eyes on her. The quick flash of guilt that Robbie did not know she was capable of did not show. The assassin is not there yet, the man said. Boyd wants Mr. McDowell near Slaver City before he is killed. No one will question another death amongst hundreds in a war. What does he look like, you miserable bastard? Robbie shouted as she pressed her boot deeper onto his neck, knowing full well that he would not be able to answer until she let it up. She pressed the cold edge of the dull knife to the base of his pelvis, then eased up her foot just enough to allow the man to talk. None of these theatrics were necessary, mind you. The man seemed perfectly willing to talk. But intellectual conversations with a child never got beyond the word why. And after waiting to ambush her assassin, she had gotten bored. This was just a way to kill the time. I, I don't know. I just know that if he failed, I was supposed to do the job myself, and vice versa, the man said, straining to keep the knife in his view. This was probably true. At the end of the day, Robbie had got the jump on the assassin easily, and this man was not good at his job. This was no hardened hitman with a thousand faces. He was a bureaucrat. It made sense that there was a contingency plan. So what you're telling me is that if someone else shows up to kill me, then Arthur is dead? Robbie asked between puffs of smoke. The man nodded. Robbie drew her hand cannon from her side and sent a bullet from the front to the back of his skull. She was no sadist, but Dinner had seen the whole thing and did not flinch. Robbie turned to the child. Whoever ruined this child, she thought, should be glad that they are dead. She carried the body out of their camp. A tidy camp was a precious thing, then found a seat next to the child that she was now sworn to protect. Dinner wore a white-collared shirt that was easily a size too big for her, a clip-on tie, and a face that said, I grew up on violence. It was an easy one for Robbie to read, for it was the same face she saw in the mirror. There might be only an ounce of blood in Robbie that was maternal, and it was an unpracticed one. She wanted to try and comfort the poor thing, but was not exactly sure how to start. Before she could muster the energy to try, and inevitably fail, Dinner spoke up. Are we going to eat him? She asked, with an innocence that did not mesh well with the question. What? No, Robbie answered, her eyebrow cocked. Murder man ate everyone he killed. Sounds like a charmer. He named you? Dinner nodded after a prolonged pause, and did so slowly. Great. Explains a lot. No, we are not going to eat him. The rotten bastard deserves to spoil out here. Why, were you hungry? Dinner nodded with more enthusiasm. What happened to that can of dog food I gave you? Robbie asked, with eyebrows lowered and smoke pouring from her lips. No answer. Robbie took another drag on her cigarette, and with no calm, asked again, what about the dog food dinner? You got to eat the fruit. I don't want the dog food. Dinner finally responded, her eyes looking sour at the fire.
avoiding Rabia's gaze. The canned grapefruit helps metabolize my drugs quicker. Eat your food, said Rabia. Do I get to do drugs? Listen, I don't care what you do with your money, kid. But the more people doing drugs, the less there is for me. Eat your food, Rabia said between her teeth. Dinner stood, then turned to the van behind them. With great effort, she tried to open the white van's sliding door. After failing at this, she elected to open the passenger's front door, then crawled inside to the back. Robbie pulled her cigarette from her mouth and cocked her head backward to watch the little girl. What are you doing in there? Robbie asked a moment before the girl returned with a tall can of dog food large enough that she had to hold it with both of her hands. The child pushed the can forward and held it out toward Robbie. I can't open, said the little one. Rabia grabbed the can quickly, not out of anger or impatience, but because the drug demanded that all actions be quick. Dinner flinched at this, and guilt covered Rabia's being like a heavy and dirty blanket. She could not afford sudden movements like that around the poor thing. She took out a can opener from her pocket and started the task of opening it. Listen, she said, avoiding the child's gaze. What I said earlier, ignore it. You don't get to do drugs, okay? Dinner nodded. Drugs are, er, bad, you get it? If anyone offers them to you, don't take them. Instead, bring them to me, got it? Dinner nodded once more, as if what Robbie had said sounded completely reasonable. Good, continued Robbie. Here's your dog food. Dinner held the open can in front of her, and her eyes went wide. You're not going to eat it first? She asked meekly. Murder man used to let me have whatever was left. Yeah, well, he was a dirty prick who wanted to fuck the world. Eat up, I'll have what's left. No more needed to be said. Dinner dug her tiny hand into the can and began to eat voraciously. Robbie was always amicable to socializing, but making friends in the United Wastes was always hard. Dinner was easy because she was a child, and any hurdles that got in the way were because of herself and not the child. Getting Arthur to open up was difficult, though getting into his pants was easy, and she trusted few to actually put in the effort. Arthur was the first man to actually act like any sort of gentleman she had met, and though he was anal and crazy for paperwork, she genuinely enjoyed his company. Burning things together was fun. But now there was a man after his life, on top of a war, ahead of him. There was no way he would survive either without her protection. Boyd had done well to split them up, but he made an error by sending a man and not an army to kill her. Listen, Robbie said, as Dinner shoveled dog food into her mouth. We have a change of plans. Dinner paused her consumption and looked up at Robbie. Are we going back to the bunker? No. We may never be able to go back. But I like the bunker. Well, it doesn't like us. I want to go back to the bunker. Robbie sighed, then lit another cigarette. There was no reason why she should argue with a child. She was the adult, after all. But that blanket of guilt was still oppressively wrapped around her. You remember Arthur? She asked. The little girl nodded her head. A slight smile peeked out from her lips at the mention of his name. Arthur had kept the little girl from fulfilling her namesake. Well, 
he's dear to me. Don't ever tell him that. And he is in great danger. Are we going to save him? Dinner asked, with childish earnest and a glob of wet dog food in her hand. We're not just going to save him, Robbie replied, taking the cigarette from her mouth. Oh, no. We're going to help the handsome bastard start a revolution. About the Author M.P. Fitzgerald is an author and humorist dedicated to injecting the feverish gonzo style into fiction. You can get Memos from the Wasteland, which is the official prequel to this book, free. It contains hilariously bleak office drama, Robbie's diary, and Arthur's last letter from his father. To get your copy, just head over to his website at mpfitzgerald.art. You'll also get free updates on future audiobooks and more. We hope you have enjoyed A Happy Bureaucracy by M.P. Fitzgerald, narrated by Gary Bennett. Text copyright 2019 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Production copyright 2021 by M.P. Fitzgerald. Music by Dustmice. Available on all streaming services and dustmice.bandcamp.com.